Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, they walked into a Boston museum and walked out with a half billion dollars in fine art. We'll talk about the Netflix series, This is a Robbery. Plus, after years behind the audible firewall, West Cork is finally available to those who've never heard this Irish murder mystery podcast. We'll revisit our 2018 review of this true crime classic. Join me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist, host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, love of my life, and popsicle enabler, Kevin Flint. Hello, Kevin. What is this that you were using my table here in the studio and there's gunk all over it? You've been um, doing media. Look at, look at, it's sticky. I think it's popsicle juice. You had a popsicle in the studio. I think I maybe did. Would you do that at the radio station? It wouldn't be allowed. But this is my. It's studio. not going to be allowed in Studio C <laughs> anymore. I never ate a popsicle down here. That's from this you. This is the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio. You have to respect it. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, a former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, certified cat lady, and legit certified pet detective, Laura. Bricker. Hello, Lara. Good evening, Rebecca. Lara, is there anything sticky in your studio tonight? Um, no, <laughs> not in my studio. Oh, uh, thank God. Thank goodness. Um, <laughs> oh, but here comes Rocky Flintstone, the cat. So, All right. Um, who knows? Rocky, stay away from that microphone. Finally, with us, where the ca- good smells are. <laughs> Finally, with us, our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as a city trilogy, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast about UFOs, and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. So, Toby, did you see the news stories about that whole UFO thing? Yeah, it's 100% aliens. (laughs) They finally proved it. Can you tell the crowd who may not have heard about that other UFO sighting that was immediately identified by the internet that's my favorite UFO sighting now of all time? The Batman balloon? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You can look it up, but it's... um... What's cool about it is it's a it's a photo that's taken out some guy's flying a fighter jet or something and he took a picture with like an iPhone or something and it does look like what you'd expect it to look like if you were in a fighter jet and you saw a UFO in the distance. Like, it's just this thing is out there. Yes. And uh, it, it's it, it's also credible because it's through the windshield of a fighter jet. And yeah. You know, it was taken by a military person. It, and it, look, it just looks it looks like exactly it'd be like, oh, yeah, shit, there's something right there. Um, but then, like, they didn't know what it was, I guess. 
and they put it up on on uh, on Twitter. And within like 15 minutes, people are like, oh, it's a Mylar balloon. And then like five minutes later, they're like, oh, yeah, it's not just a Mylar balloon. It's this Mylar balloon. <laughs> and it was a Batman Mylar balloon, <laughs> which they had identified. It took them like 20 minutes on, on Twitter. The military but, uh, couldn't figure it out, but the crowd could. Yeah, but it's a, it's, it's a cool – it's like – it's an interesting picture. I mean, it is sort of like – when I first saw it, I was like, well, that's the kind of thing that, that I would expect to see, not yeah. like some fuzzy thing in the distance, but it's like this it's like this serious object, but it was it was a Batman balloon. Why yes. would an Air Force pilot have his iPhone up there? He's gotta you know, he's gotta keep up with social media. Yeah. Stay in touch ladies. Life doesn't stop just because he's up at forty thousand feet or whatever. <laughs> I got best feelings. You know what he's doing? Play. He's reporting Mike Boudet to Twitter safety. Oh, is what he's right. doing. Uh, <laughs> God, that guy. <laughs> um, so, quick question, Toby. I just want to clear up for the audience who might not know about your UFO podcast. Your take in the podcast is really about skepticism, which is very on brand, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a UFO skeptic, but I think what's, from my perspective, what's kind of interesting is sort of what you can learn from UFO stories. Like, what are they telling us about science or about society or whatever? So, I try to like, Tell UFO stories, but also kind of look at like what's behind them, I guess. I think we should start a campaign. I think Toby Ball should be the next host of Jeopardy. I'm just going to say it. Mm. Take that, Aaron <laughs> Rodgers. I mean, they're not calling yeah. LeVar Burton, even though they should. So maybe They're they not should... calling LeVar Burton? Can you fucking believe it? No, even though he should and he wants to. Anyway, it's oh. a whole thing. Hmm. Should we go ahead and start this podcast Yeah. Now? All right, let's get it done. Leading off. I mean, everybody talks about the gun. This is, this is it. The biggest hot theft in the history of the world. Millions of dollars worth of artwork. They disappeared. Somebody had to know something. In March of 1990, two men dressed as Boston police officers entered the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, tied up the guards, and made off with a half billion dollars worth of fine art, including works by Rembrandt, Vermeer, Manet, and Degas. Cast my partner very dramatically said, gentlemen, this is a robber. Was the heist an inside job? The work of a master art thief from Massachusetts? The IRA or the Italian mafia? And what happened to those famous paintings sliced right from their frames? We started getting calls from South America. We had this lead that came from Japan. There was a tip that said the paintings had been stolen by a group and they had wound up in France. Netflix's four-part series, This is a Robbery, takes an in-depth look at how the heist went down, the many colorful characters who could have pulled it off, and the likelihood these masterpieces will ever be recovered. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from This is a Robbery, so if you want to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs-up or thumbs-down review. Lara Bricker, you've been to the Godner Museum, right? Yeah. So every time something comes up about this, I think this was my junior high field trip. The first time pretty much I left the state of Vermont and went to Boston and we went to the Gardner Museum. Were you scoping the place out? You casing it? Yeah, because it was the time frame was right, Kevin. It was like 88, 89 would have been or maybe 87, 88, 88, like in that that era would have been when I was there. And I don't really remember so much about the museum. I remember it was also my first trip to a mall, like the Burlington mm. Mall on the way home. Fancy. <laughs> so that was like actually the highlight of the trip. A but banner I remember day. It, it, it was a big day um, for me. That is definitely <laughs> the fanciest mall in our region. It's where a mall cop was filmed, right, Kevin? Yeah, actually it was. Yeah. It's true, yes. And there's a crate and barrel there, which is very fancy. Now, Kevin... Um, 
What about the format of this documentary? Because we've reviewed a bunch of documentaries in the last few months, a lot of them like largely made during the pandemic. I thought this one was really well put together. What did you think? Oh, I thought so, too. And by the way, I just having read something. I mean, they've been shooting this for about four years Mm. now, so it's not all pandemic uh, production. But I, I did think it was put together very well, certainly the first episode where we get to find out about the art and the museum and that background and give us an appreciation for what the heist was about. I thought that that was very well done. And, you know, there's just enough sort of Boston flavor to it without being too much. It doesn't become this sort of Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Boston noir. I like them apples. Yeah, you know, they got to go. <laughs> becomes a cliche. You know, got to meet you in Mattapan, up in Saugus. Come meet me in Peabody. <laughs> See the, you know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't you like know, a Dennis Lehane movie. Yeah, it wasn't like that. You know, they you know, all these bagpipes and shit like that. You know, it just, it was, uh, it, it caught a lot of sort of the flavor of that museum because I think you have to care about the art in order to care about the heist. Mm. Otherwise, it's just, you know, the MacGuffin Museum, right? You you want to know a little more. You want to, like, really care about or, or know why, you know, Christ on the Sea of Galilee is a big deal. Yeah, right? it is a big deal. It's big. It's, it's the, big. Only, the yeah. only one like it by Rembrandt. Like well, it's, it's, a, it's a $10 million painting. Yeah, right? and yeah. it's like four by five, which means you could not put it in a tiny Tupperware under your shed, as we discover in the documentary. Now, Toby, one of the things that's always fascinated me about this robbery, which is for us like a regionally famous story, but it is, you know, I think there have been a lot of pop culture references to it, is the guard, Rick Abath who looks like he wants to be Howard Stern, first of all. (laughs) Second, when you see the pictures of him tied up with duct tape all over his face and hair, to me, it looks like the way you would put duct tape on yourself if you were trying to, like, duct tape. The guy who was dealing with me was taller and skinny. He was wearing his gold frame, like, round glasses, if I remember correctly, and he had a mustache. It looked really greasy. It was probably a fake mustache. What do you think of the whole Rick Abath thing? He definitely kind of emerges as somebody who might have been involved, right? Yeah. Well, first of all, if I had hair like that, I wouldn't want duct tape anywhere near it. Ouch. (laughs) Seems like it's going to be a freaking nightmare. So this is like one of my main criticisms of this is that they do kind of make this case that it seems like he might be involved in some way, but then they don't tie it to the rest of their sort of theory about what happened. It's like, well, it's pretty weird that he was opening the door and that, you know, he wasn't like super tied up and and maybe he was involved, right? And then they later go, and I assume we'll talk about this in a minute, with this sort of bigger, more definitive theory that they kind of put forward, but they don't connect the two at all, unless I'm forgetting something, but there's no point at which those two things kind of meet. Ooh, there is, though. It was basically just a throwaway thing where it was like they paid him a few hundred bucks and like it was easy to do because everybody who worked there, like... It wasn't a professional job. It was just like a side gig. That was the only time and time they they. That's not really there. a connection. I mean, that's yeah. just like yeah. in my mind. That's that's just the like theory. yeah. I mean, it's just sort of like well, you know, maybe they toss him a couple hundred bucks. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting where they had that little that they had that uh, that tape from their dinner table talk with that reporter. Um, so yeah, I mean, I it was it was good, but it just kind of got dropped. 
And then, you know, I just kind of felt the whole thing was a little, didn't cohere very well. Mm. I thought there were, there were parts of it, like the different parts were fairly good, but did they create a very good whole? That's what I'm not sure about. So you got this guy, Rick Abath, is yeah. that his name? Yeah. And he's got the big, like, head of curly hair. The 80s Howard Stern do, yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking, like, I I know you shouldn't judge people by the way they look, but this museum hired a guy with Howard Stern hair and a fanny pack. Yeah. And they said, this is the guy to guard yes. priceless works of art. Yes. You get what you pay for. Well, that was the Ta- whole point. Tie-dye under his uniform. I mean, yeah. the whole point. I I'm mean, ho- isn't he going there just to like play the trombone at night or something? I forget. Well, Anne Hawley, who is the museum director who was brought in like right before the, the crime happened, she kind of came in and like was ship shaping the place, right? There was just a lot of like infrastructure stuff to do. Mm-hmm. They talked about how the Isabella Stewart Garden, there should be clouds inside the museum because the <laughs> HVAC situation sucked so bad. Like there's these priceless works of art and it was just like dinge and like bad, you know, air everywhere. Anyway, it seems like part of that kind of poor infrastructure was just kind of a lax take on you know, it was just a, it was probably like a ten dollar an hour job or whatever the equivalent was then, and they were just hiring people, and they they thought it was all together, but they had bigger things to focus on, like the fact that these art was going to be ruined by having literal clouds inside the museum. Mm. That was my takeaway. Um, Laura, question for you: One of the things I found so interesting about this is the fact that stealing art is not necessarily about hanging the art in your secret rich person house or selling the art in the black market, but art as blackmail, art as a tool to lessen your jail sentence, art as a trade with the cops over something, and that being a motivating factor for like a ton of art thefts. What did you think about that? Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things when I'm thinking about this case and the fact that this art has never resurfaced and there's all these rumors of where it is, but there's never actually been any like verified sightings. So, you know, when you think about that and then you hear the story in this case where it was like, well, this guy was in jail and he was like the son to this mafia boss. And this is, you know, something he was going to use as a bargaining chip. What was interesting about that is there's this this sort of like, it doesn't jive with when I think of like mobsters, I don't think of Rembrandt. Mm. So, you know, the fact that they were carrying off a pretty sophisticated heist and knowing which artwork to take that was most valuable, you know, that was really interesting. But it's also just kind of sad because then in the long run, this artwork never does make it out to be seen again and appreciated, which is what you would hope it would be used for. Well, you would or you wouldn't, because the idea for me of like a Rembrandt just being in somebody's like secret collection where only they can see it. Like I find that very depressing in a way, but also I find it like very um, depraved. Like there is this whole like, as we've been learning in the last few years, this like ultra 1% part of the world where not only do they live in a crazy way, but they do like insane things. Like nothing is ever enough. I could imagine, for instance, Jeffrey Epstein having one of these fucking Rembrandts in his like weird like molestation <laughs> palace. I honestly could. Like in that, I don't know. I, I just, I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of like the idea better that these guys are just like, listen, I may be arrested for a future thing. So one thing I can do is steal this Picasso right? because that will help lower my sentence in a year when I'm going to be arrested for this other shit that I did. Well, it's, it's weird because it seems like it's the only crime where the thing that's taken is more valuable than the criminals. Yeah. 
right? No one ever says, you robbed the bank, give us the money back, yes. right? They're not, that isn't the thing they're trying to do. And one of the things that they don't really talk about is that the statute of limitations on this crime has lapsed. Yeah. The federal statute of limitations is five years. So unless, you know, you'd throw in some sort of conspiracy thing or furtherance of a conspiracy, the people who did it could come forward and yeah. return the art. Or at least if you knew something, you could say it without at least getting in trouble with the law. I mean, you might get in trouble with the mafia or somebody, but... It seems like there's a bunch of murders that yeah. are sort of oh, connected. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think you could probably say, hey, man, that that's outside of the scope of what I was doing. I just stole some paintings. But it's one of those things. They're, they're, they're one of a kind thing. So you either get them back or you don't. There's not like, oh, I'll just get another Rembrandt and stick it in that same spot. It's not the way it works. Yeah. Well, there's this great line. Uh, Dennis Leary is in the Thomas Crown Affair. He's the cop. And Rene Russo is the insurance mm-hmm. investigation. And then, of course, Pierce Brosnan is Thomas Crown. By the way, that 90s version of Thomas Crown Affair is a perfect 10 movie if you haven't seen That's it. That's like your favorite. Anyway. It's one of my favorite movies. But there's a great line about like the import of paintings as commodities. And Dennis Leary basically says, like, only a very few rich people care this much about Mm -hmm. this thing. But it's true. And the influence of that and, of course, the fact that it's one of a kind and of historical import. It's very interesting to me that it has that much weight as opposed to, say, killing somebody. You know what I mean? Yeah. But going into this documentary, you definitely would think, well, why would you if you couldn't fence it? Why would you want the art? What value does it have? And then they bring in the receipts. They talk about uh, Miles Connor. Oh, my God. We got to talk about him. And how he used recovered art to get his sentence reduced. Do you guys remember that podcast we listened to about Murph the Surf? And we're sort of like, ah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Miles Connor is the real fucking deal. And some people consider me the biggest art thief in this country because I've robbed a number of museums. But then again, I was a rock and roll guy. So I interviewed the director of this documentary. He told me that Miles Connor, like the legend of Murph the Surf, had all of these other things that happened in his life besides just being an art thief. But to me, it's incredible that somebody who was like an admitted genius art thief is just sitting down doing interviews for a documentary. Laura, what did you think about that? Well, I thought he was a great character because, you know, you have him kind of sitting outside. He's he's kind of a little bit of this, like, kooky character. He's obviously very forthcoming about what he was doing, and he he's uh, pretty proud of what he did. But he was just kind of like, I think if I was out and about and I ran into him, I would want to sit and talk to him to hear all of his crazy stories, even though I think half of them would be total bullshit because he likes to talk about <laughs> things that may or, you know, may or not be true. Now, he was the one that did the other museum, correct? The yeah. one that was, yeah. So it's like a whole new underworld that I didn't know. I mean, I knew existed, but it, it's interesting to see it right here in our very own backyard. Toby, what'd you think of Miles Connor? Uh, he's a great character. I think he's 75% full of shit, um, but that's fine. In the context of this documentary, that's absolutely fine. The 25% is probably worthwhile. In the end, does he really have anything to do with anything to do with this this heist? Uh, I don't think so. So it, he's he's in there for like, he's kind of a red herring. He kind of gives you a little background. He gives you a crap load of color, but that's about it, right? I mean, it's they kind of follow this dead end where where he supposedly stashes those paintings that in the trailer of some low level crook who then takes this journalist from the Boston Herald on a drive from Boston to New York <laughs> to show him for like thirty seconds a picture by flashlight in a factory in Red Hook, and he's kind of running the light. 
over it a little bit. Eventually, like, the beam hits the Rembrandt signature. And then he says, okay, you know, that's all. You got to go. There's my proof. There are these, like, weird little blind alleys that you go down, and you kind of realize that they're probably not going to pay out because you're only on part two of a four-part thing. So it's like, is this really going to be the solution? Anyway, but he's a good character. I would like to just see a documentary about him. Same. And I would recommend, Toby, that you look him up because the stuff you think is 75% bullshit is not. I did that. I was was completely amazed. Really? Yeah. Kevin, what did you think about this guy? I think he could have picked a different shirt. (laughs) (laughs) So... Let's yeah, go it's moisture wicking, dude. Oh my god! He could have cut him the dry. grass and like, here, let's set up a chair right in the middle. He didn't give a fuck. Dude. I love he didn't that. Give a fuck. I'm in my slippers and my clean white T-shirt, and apparently I have a, a non-climate controlled storage bunker in my backyard where I kept stolen artwork before. We know that he was imprisoned at the time of the heist. Yeah. But these two fake cops, these two robbers went through like they had a shopping list. So we have to assume that they knew what to take because somebody had to tell them what to take. And certainly some of the ideas about what the security systems are going to be like, some of it definitely could have been from some drunk blabbermouth, $5 an hour security guard, but also you know somebody who knew how to pull off an art heist would have to be consulted, right? Yeah. Were you curious about why they stole that little tiny vase? Because I, I actually have the answer to that. No, I, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, I was cons- curious. But. When I interviewed the director, I asked him that question. It's not really explained. Apparently, there was another robbery where one of those t- tiny little vases was stolen. It was worth like a gajillion dollars. Mm-hmm. So, like a lot of people think that they were, you know, they were sent in for the paintings, or they went for the paintings, and then someone just walked by that thing and they're like, oh, that's like that thing that. So they could just put it in their pocket. The same with that little weird corbel thing. Like it was just small and it was something similar to something else that had been worth a lot. It could have been the jackpot thing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It was the weird like, thing. I mean, it was, it was the scratch ticket yeah. of things to sell. The security <laughs> system where like even for like 1990 that would like buzz when, you know, proximity alerts when people would go through something. The one thing that was really interesting was in the blue room, which is one that the system says that the burglars didn't go to. While they were there, it did go off before they showed up. Hmm. So it certainly does kind of like make you think, did somebody on the inside. Was it Rick putting that vase in his pocket? Yeah. Before you know, he taped his it, I think it was the little, uh, uh, little Monsieur Cheche, whatever the thing was. Yeah. yeah the yeah. little. We're very, art, we're very artsy here. Tell yeah. me what you're going to say. I, I think some guy with like half an hour in a library could figure out what was the valuable stuff in there or the I mean, pamphlet I, from the tour yeah <laughs> yeah i just i don't like when they're like yeah oh, you know must have had you know somebody must have directed them it's like yeah i i feel like if you got the pamphlet from the tour and went to the boston public library and spent a few hours just doing a little research you could probably figure out a lot of it and then the fact that they were just like cutting these things out of the frames you know they, they weren't doing anything to preserve them in any kind of way i mean they're treating them very roughly so i wasn't totally convinced that somebody was kind of telling them much of anything. I mean, it, it seemed like you could just like wait for this fucking burnout guy walk out as a guard and be like, hey, man, you want to make 200 bucks? You know, just let us in on this day. And he's like, okay. Yeah. And then, mm-hmm. uh, and then you just do it that day. And you're like, I'm going to take these paintings. I'm going to take off and I'm going to do whatever. I mean, I guess that's the thing. It's like what happened once they left. 
and where did it go? And you're kind of given this sort of theory without a ton of evidence, as far as I could tell. So does that make this the perfect crime or a perfect crime? I feel like it's more of a perfect crime when you get something out of it, other than a bunch of paintings stuck in a warehouse somewhere. Hmm. Or under someone's shed. (laughs) But as far as if it's just like, can you get away with something that's super high profile? Like... I would feel pretty good about myself, I think. Hmm. Laura, so there is this whole, like, um, the documentary goes through a series of theories, but the one that they kind of land on is mafia-related. And there's Mm -hmm. a journalist who kind of gets hooked into this story and ends up going on, like, the mafia tour of New England. I'm just curious about about that twist, because I do remember the news story about, like, we are searching this home in Connecticut, and we're digging underneath this shed, and we found this giant empty Tupperware. Like, what did you think of that part of the story? Well, I loved all the journalists. You know, back in Boston, we have these like gritty seasoned Boston Globe reporters that have been doing this forever. The one Shelley Murphy, who's covered organized crime forever, it seems like. But my favorite, I want to talk about this guy because I loved him. The guy from the Hartford Current, the yep. reporter, I felt like his description, like at first you see him and he's like this like clean cut older man. But once he starts describing this scene with, and I can't remember the name of the guy in New Jersey. It's the old guy who went to Maine to the lobster pound and picked up the Robert paint. Robert G- Gentile. Gentile. And all of these guys have this like car business. And then you see this like <laughs> shitty used car business. I'm like, oh, oh my God, I know those places. But I loved how like he installed the gourmet kitchen in the back and was like cooking for all the like washed up retired gangsters. Making the gravy. Yeah. Every it was like in uh, Goodfellas when they were like making yeah. the gravy in jail with the slicing the garlic with the razor. <laughs> but it just, I don't know about you guys, that gave me such a good visual. I was like, oh my God, I can totally imagine this scene. You got out of the prison on the 17th, which I think was a Saturday. I had lunch with him. I, was I paid. I paid. He bought two lunches. Took one home with him. Can we just talk about sort of the the seminal theory of this, the final theory? So I guess it's not the seminal theory. Who said seminal? About David Turner, who is like the one living guy who was part of this gang, who, by the way, just looking at his face, David Turner, if you're listening to this, turn this off now because I'm very scared of you. Looks <laughs> like the scariest motherfucker I have ever seen. Yeah, he, he looks, looks like, too jolly. He looks like he would be played by that guy who looks like Matt Damon that isn't Matt Damon, who was in Breaking Bad. You know that guy? Like that guy would yeah. play David Turner. Like he looks terrifying to me and it sort of lands on him. Put a fake mustache and police hat on him and draw his face. He looks just like the picture. Just saying. So, Toby, what did you think of this sort of, you know, you said you sort of feel like it doesn't prove it, but I do feel like the the David Turner and all the other guys being dead thing, like, he's out and maybe connected. Like, what did you think of that whole conclusion that they kind of led us to here? You know, my sense at the end of it, without like going back and watching it again to test my my theory, is that all that shit could have happened and had the the paintings didn't have to be involved at all. They could have just been involved in something else. Like they're crooks, right? And mm-hmm. then they eventually just crossed each other and some died natural deaths or OD'd or whatever. Or were rubbed out and like thrown in a trunk. I, I didn't see... And maybe I missed something, but there was there was no point I was like, okay, well, there, there it is. You know, they, they, they had the paintings. They must have. Instead, it's like all this shit happened, and now he's out, and maybe he knows where the paintings are. They kind of have this theory, but then you never – is there any ever evidence other than people, like, kind of telling stories? Kevin, the IRA is at one point implicated too, right? Oh, yeah. I love that the IRA had a press officer who's still around. It's like, it's rubbish. 
<laughs> it's garbage. We wouldn't have any of that. <laughs> Take your art. Go back to Methuen. Thirteen paintings would have been the last thing that they would even bring up at an army council meeting. What are we talking about this shit for? Harry, nothing to do with this. But that, that's been your job, right? Is to like write press releases for things that are happening? Like, what kind of press releases would the IRA write? It would be like... It'd be like, we take credit for that pipe bomb <laughs> you found at the train station. Right. Yeah. For more yeah. information, call. <laughs> well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out This is a Robbery on Netflix? It's a four-part documentary about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist and all of the theories around it. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for This is a Robbery? Um, so I'm going to do a thumbs up for this. It's not like a huge thumbs up, but it. W- I mean, anytime we have something that happens in our own backyard where it's in our region, I mean, obviously, we've all followed this case for years. Uh, heck, I was there casing the joint. Um, it could have been me. It could be in my basement right now. Just kidding. Um, you know, my only thing with this is I feel like it did get very dense at times. There was some really into the weeds play by play of all of the investigations investigation and the players. And it sometimes for me, that sort of slowed the momentum of the story. But if you want to know about this heist and you want to know everything that happened behind the scenes, this is totally the documentary to watch. Hmm. Tell me about what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this is a robbery. You know, kind of giving it an F thumbs up. I feel like now, like people know how to make a quality true crime documentary. I mean, I think that the formula is there and you can kind of find your crime and find the right people to talk to and plug them in and it's good to have a colorful person and a couple of cops and some newspaper people. It's certainly an interesting case. There's some interesting sort of storylines, but at the end of it, it kind of felt, and maybe this is an accurate representation of the effort to find these things, is that it was just kind of casting about and sort of came up with what they seemed like was the most plausible thing. But again, I mean, I didn't walk away convinced that that was what had happened, that it had been like this mob thing and they'd gone up to Maine and then Hartford and then Philadelphia and and all this stuff. I mean, that just seemed like another possibility, but without much proof. So it's a low pass in my uh, in my book. Still a thumbs up, though. What about you, Kevin? I'm going to go thumbs up. Uh, I agree that, you know, it's... It's good. It's not great. The problem with the source material, of course, is that there's no resolution. We don't know what happened to the paintings. Nobody was ever arrested. And so when you're telling the story, when you're thinking about, well, what's the ending going to be? I mean, the whole thing could kind of fall apart. And it doesn't really fall apart, but I, I think that they're able to tell a good enough story along so that you're like, even though the ending is not really a satisfying ending that you could still kind of go, okay, but that was a really interesting story. Hmm. So in any event, uh, it was an interesting case. There have been a couple of podcasts about it, several documentaries. This is a good one. And it, uh, if you want to you know, enter this, uh, this crime and find out what it's all about, see all the, the videotape from inside, check out the guy's curly hair, watch this. 
Yeah, I like this documentary, too. I'm going to give it a thumbs up. I think my favorite part about it was more about the museum itself. I mean, so many stories about this that have been told really focus on the the theft, the sort of like heist part of it. But here we get a lot of actually about the museum. I really think Anne Hawley is like a fascinating character in this. This was she was like new on the job. And this happens and she becomes the face of like the the biggest art crime in history. There was stuff like that I found really interesting. The one thing I will say is that every piece of media that's ever been made about this, the the two podcasts, both of which I did not enjoy that I listened to about this, um, they all sort of seem like they're all trying to solve it. And I think at this point we know that, like, you're not going to solve it. Like, either some, mm-hmm. either someone's going to, like, buy something at the Salvation Army that's going to turn out to be one of these Rembrandt paintings or find it in someone's basement after their grandma dies, or it's never going to be solved. Like, I think the paintings, some of them have probably been destroyed at this point, whatever. I would really have loved it if going into it, it was more like why this can't be solved. You know what I mean? Because there is some of that in there, but that's not the frame around. I think about In the Dark Season the 1. the frame. No, but I think about In the Dark Season 1, right? They got this huge break where the Jacob Wetterling case was solved like three weeks before the podcast came out. Mm-hmm. But the podcast was supposed to be about why this wasn't solved. And I actually love that take. And I think this story should have been approached with that take. Why isn't it solved? Because there's this, 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 and this. Other than that, I really love the documentary. I think it's really nicely put together. Thumbs up for me for This is a Robbery. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So... No, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Kevin Flynn, here we are in the business section. (laughs) So what have we got to talk about, Kevin? What is happening in our Patreon right now? Hey, we're closing in on 200 podcasts. In our Patreon? In our Patreon. That's almost as many as outside our Patreon. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of great stuff. Like, it's easy to get in on Patreon. You go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. And at the $5 level, you get things like... The Crime Writers on After Show on this week's After Show, which is in that feed right now. We're going to be talking about the latest filing from Kathleen Zellner. In the Stephen Avery case. In the Stephen Avery case. For making a murderer. She gots herself an alternative suspect, so but we're going to talk about that. what jacket is she wearing? That's what's the most important Yeah, event. Look, that's, you, can, you can get that at the $5 level. At the $6 level, you also get Leave It to Bricker. And in the latest episode, we hear Lara and uh, Fireman Ken talking. And Lara, someone asked wh- whether we think that Ken sounds like Ray Romano. Oh. Yeah, he does. I like, like a Massachusetts version of Ray Romano instead of like a New York version of Ray Romano. Yeah, he has a yeah. little nasally thing. I can see that. Yeah, yeah. He's cuter, though. A lot cuter. 
Well, there you go. And uh, yeah, and I'll have a new Leave it to Burger coming out soon, a follow-up to that one, part two. So stay Ooh. tuned. Um, mm. We've got some great crime writers on listeners around the world that are also volunteering at vaccine clinics. Nice. And we're going to hear from them. Nice. You also can get Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast. And uh, this time, or I should say coming up soon, the next month, the book is Hidden Valley Road. Salad dressing? No, Hidden Valley Road. Hidden Valley Ranch is delicious, but Hidden Valley Road by Bob Kolker. One of our favorite writers. Toby, who are the guests coming? So I apparently lost the ability to count to three because Mm -hmm. I have four guests, uh, which is the (laughs) most guests we've ever had. But it's going to be an awesome panel, as you will, you're about to hear. It's going to be an extra uh, long episode. Yes. It's uh, Crime Beat host and uh, journalist formerly with the Orange County Register, now with the Nashville Tennessean, I believe, uh, Keith Sharon. Mm-hmm. We have Dr. Scott from L.A. Not So Confidential. Nice. For people who don't know, Hidden Valley Road is about, um, it's about a family with 12 kids, uh, six of whom were schizophrenic, mm-hmm. um, and about their story but then also how that family kind of provided some of the keys to what we know about schizophrenia anyway so dr scott who is a forensic psychologist should have some insight uh nanita cranford nice one of our favorite listeners and uh somebody named rabia chowdhury nice so that's the group and me nice and toby now they're recording that on april 28th That audio podcast will be out shortly after, but if you're at the $25 level at Patreon, you also can watch them record the podcast, and you can take part either by chat or even coming out on the video and then getting in on the podcast and taking part in the book club with your own thoughts. It's going to be like a Zoom situation. This time because Toby overbooked it. Yeah, it can't be crowdcast. It's can't be, be crowdcast. It'll be on Zoom, yeah. but we'll, we'll make it work it'll for everybody. Work. It'll be fine. Yeah. You just record the Zoom. It'll be fine. It'll be totally fine. And whether you're on Patreon or not, we want you to sign up for our newsletter. You have to. It's so good. Like, it's very easy. You just go to crimewriterson.com. Right at the top of the page there, just put in your email address. You'll get... Uh, on Monday mornings, you'll get an update about what's in the episode. You'll get to see the cat of the week. You'll get sneak peeks on what we're going to be doing in the coming weeks. Plus, you're going to get CWO BTS. That's behind the scenes. It's not a dance group. It's a K-pop group. It's a K-pop group. But you actually get the behind the scenes as well. Kevin, I got to tell you, you're yeah. crushing the newsletter. I'm loving the newsletter. Thank you, babe. I am on the show, and I love reading the newsletter about the show I am on. That's saying something about the quality of our newsletter. Congratulations. Same. Same. I love the newsletter as well. I, I especially love when I write a note to the listeners in the newsletter. Ooh. I, and I also like these little tidbits that show up. I'm like, I didn't know that. Neither did I. And I was there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so go to crimewriterson.com, sign up for our newsletter. Kevin, before we leave the business section, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Claire Guyton and Tom Ring. Bless you. Bless you. And thus ends the business Business section. Back in 2018, Audible released the podcast West Cork. For a brief period, it was free to listen to on the Audible app, but then it went behind a paywall. Despite the praise for the show, many true crime fans never got a chance to listen to this instant classic. Well, now is your chance. Audible has released West Cork on the major podcast platforms where it will remain for public consumption for the next 12 months. 
So now we get to do something we've never had the chance to do before. Replay a review for a podcast many of you were unable to hear the first time around. So let's rewind the tape and play our first spoiler-free review of West Cork. Audible this week released its 13-part true crime series, West Cork. It was a beautiful still night. Frosty, full moonish, and calm. There were stories all over the place about people heard to screaming, and, and maybe they did, you know. But she was found the next morning, battered to death on the road. Though the murder of a French national in a sleepy Irish village is familiar to many people in Ireland, England and France, it's a virtually unknown case to American audiences. A husband and wife team spent three years in and reporting around West Cork, documenting a story about small town rumors, botched investigations, spies and double agents with the prime suspect still living among his community members. If you've never heard of this case... Do not look it up. <laughs> before you listen. <laughs> don't Google it. Yeah. Don't do it. Don't do it. I didn't do it. And it's a decision that I stand by. And I always look at spoilers. Uh, we plan to keep our discussion as spoiler free as we possibly can because we want you to be able to listen to the podcast and enjoy its many surprises as much as I just want to say I did. I can't speak for the rest of you. We'll talk about basic plot points. We'll never refer to the suspect by name. And other characters will also say the characters, who they are, yeah, but right. not their names. So if you still want just a strict thumbs up or thumbs down review of West Cork to know if it's worth your time, we will put the timestamp in the show notes as to when we're doing that part. But, but stick around. Because, stick around. Yeah, you're not we're going to try spoiled. to keep this yeah. spoiler free. Yeah. You can know up front that the victim, because they say it right up front, is Sophie Toscan Duplantier, a French documentarian who was killed just before Christmas 1996 in West Cork. Uh, we also know that the nation of Ireland knows who the prime suspect is and that he's a bit of a celebrity. But the suspect's identity is held back from listeners for several episodes. Kevin, was it a good idea to do that this way? Yeah, I think so. Um, his identity is known to people who have followed this in the, in the UK and Ireland and whatnot. But to, to most of us, this is brand new. I, I think that this was a, a, a clever narrative device because it draws you into sort of a large cast of characters. And to some extent, when we find out who this suspect is, we're a little taken aback. Because we already know the suspect. Because we've met this person. That's right. Toby, what do you think? Did this work to hold back the identity of the suspect for so long at the start of West Cork? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think for the reasons Kevin mentions, and I also think because this person has such a strong and unique personality that I think it would risk taking over if this person was introduced earlier in the show. So I think being able to kind of set up the situation without having the prime suspect be sort of identified and taken a look at, I think was, was definitely the right choice. That's a really good point because the prime suspect does, he doesn't hijack the podcast, but a lot of content has to be about 
the suspect, you know, for, for many reasons, which become evident. Laura, the, the structure of, of the podcast, did it work for you? It did. You know, it was definitely, you know, I, I also tried not to Google this before I started. And the way that it was told, you know, it was revealing things almost like, like a book in terms of, you know, little bits of information being doled out so that you didn't get all the information up front. And you were sort of, I felt like I was learning information as it was happening kind of chronologically in the case, which made it more satisfying um, and also more outrageous. And like, I just became upset at certain things um, when they were revealed. I was like, I can't believe that. Um, <laughs> you know, there was there was definitely some crazy things that occurred in in this case. So it, it did work for me. There were a couple points where I felt like it did get a little bit slow in the actual buildup. But if you can get through that when the big reveal comes and, and the pace starts to pick up, it's all worth it. You know, it's interesting that you should say that because I think it's tempting to think of this as a European podcast because the two hosts are British. It's not. This is an American podcast produced by an American company with American editors and American producers. They're all in the credits. It's all the folks at Audible, some of whom I know, by the way, or I'm friends with on Facebook. Eric Newsom. Um, yet... Kevin, don't you think this podcast feels a little more structured like not an American sensibility? Yeah, sort of, sort of a pacing yeah, kind of yeah. is very steady. And I, I don't want to say slow, but it, but yeah, it's not action packed, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a, you know, sort of a lot of interviews and, and they're setting up an awful lot for later on. So if you're like looking for, you know, bam, something right off in the first episode, you might be disappointed. I'm glad that we got to listen to all of it. Beforehand, if we only listen to like two episodes, like yes, sometimes we get to do. Thanks to our friends at Audible for making the episodes available to us. That was a big yeah. I think difference. we I think we would have been left with a with a very different impression of what this podcast was about, and where it was going. So, but it, you know, it to me, it actually feels more like a book. Mm-hmm. And Laura said this, but I when I look at the way that the episodes are structured, they're very much structured like a true crime. Like chapters in a true crime book, right? In the sense that we have one which is right up front, which is dedicated to the victim, one that's dedicated to the crime scene, the place, one that is dedicated to the place, which which is where they lead off with. That's the first one. You don't usually do that in a book, but you could. And then like sort of one that's you know looks specifically at the background of the prime suspect, and then you get into sorts of all other. Things, but but deep each dives. has deep dives, but each has a has a theme, right? Which I, th- you know, I think it's kind of like, well, this is an audible production. I don't know if that's by intention or not, but it did sort of have the feel to me of, of something like a book. No, I totally agree. It's like an Anne Cleves book. This podcast, oh, okay, it's very much like the pace yeah. and the structure of a British mystery novel, where there are sections, and very often in some of the books that I listen to, um, you know, there are sections that are divided into sub-chapters, and each one of those sections is about a thematic story or side story or a piece of the story. And that's how it felt to me. Now, now Toby, talking about um, place, because... West Cork, you know, has a very specific set of people living there and it's in a very specific geography. And the show does spend an awful lot of time up at the top describing the play, something we've heard before. I think season two of Accused did something similar where they felt that there was a need for you to understand the environs. Mm -hmm. Um, What did you think of that way to kick off the show, to go do this lengthy description of the place and the people there? Well, first of all, it sounds awesome. Mm -hmm. Like I would definitely like to spend a year there it is uh, i've actually been to uh, crookhaven in west cork oh all right well, and it is awesome <laughs> i want to hear about that after toby's answer <laughs> go ahead yeah no i think it's 
I think it's both it's good and it's important because it isn't like a traditional place, mm-hmm. right? I mean it's 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 a place where uh you know, it's fairly remote and it attracts artists and creative types. Yeah, what they call blowing. Yeah, um it's a good term. And it, it so there's a lot of there's a lot of people who aren't from around there originally. For this story, I think it's actually pretty critical to kind of understand all that stuff because it does sort of set up some of the you know, dynamics and tensions that come into play as the story kind of moves along. Now, Laura, uh, one of the things that I think makes this podcast stand apart is the mm-hmm. amount of access they have to the suspect. Yes. Is it the most access we've heard to a suspect in a case since Serial Season 1, you think? I think so. I mean, I'm sure, you know, somebody will correct me if there was something that I missed. But it was definitely not only access, but just the amount of research and information that the suspect had on hand to provide the husband and wife team, the level of involvement um, in the story, which is good and bad, because I feel like, I mean, part of what hits me about the suspect is that he has an ability to sort of almost like hijack situations to deflect from what's really happening onto what he thinks you should be paying attention to. And I feel like that might be sort of like almost like the trap here in having as much access as they do. Now, Toby, we have a husband and wife, you know, Sam and Jennifer working on this podcast as as a team. I I actually (laughs) love it. Shut up, Kevin. Um, And, you know, I think that, you know, as Laura was saying, they do have this unprecedented access to this suspect, this guy who they show has the ability to take over and hijack, and they tell us, try to do that to them. Do you think they do a good job staying objective, keeping their distance from the traps that this guy is trying to lay for them, potentially? Yeah, yeah. It's not like an exact like one-to-one thing, but he did remind me a little bit of John McLemore in that mm-hmm. he's, he's a big personality, definitely manipulative. You know, in, in, the, in the case of this suspect, I think believes that the more chance he gets to explain himself and try and drive the narrative, the better off he is. I I don't think that's necessarily true, but in his mind, clearly that is the case. And this is one of the things I I really liked about this podcast. It starts off as being like sort of a super competent, but fairly conventional true crime podcast and then it just becomes these different things mm-hmm. as well. And part of it is this character study of the prime suspect who, at least to me, I found him super interesting. Mm-hmm. Like he's he's not particularly likable, but he does have this kind of charisma about him. He does seem like the kind of guy you'd sit at next to a pub and then he would talk for like four consecutive hours about stuff that some of which you might be interested in, some of which you wouldn't. I think they actually do an excellent job of letting them talk, yep. you know, and you have enough of a framework through which to kind of understand what he's talking about that, that you're able to kind of, you know, I think sort of come to your own conclusions without sort of being led by the hand to them, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is, I think is difficult to do. And I think they do it really well. Can we go back for a second and talk about place? Sure. In this, in the town of West Cork, is not a town. That's the a county. The county. Cork is a county. Yeah. And I think what's really cool, and Toby was talking about blow ins. Mm-hmm. And so it's, I think they, they kind of explained like it's sort of the, the farthest. West, west yep. in Europe that you can go. Yep. It, it is sort of, you know, metaphorically the end of the earth. Yep. 
It's secluded. It's secluded. There are palm trees there, which they don't mention in the podcast, but it's super weird. <laughs> it never freezes there. So, like, there, because it's right on the, the current that comes up from uh, the Gulf of Mexico across the Atlantic. The, sort of, even though the water is very cold, like, you don't necessarily want to jump into the ocean, but randomly freezes so seldom there that there are occasionally palm trees that pop up. It's a very interesting place. It is a gorgeous place. When I was a teenager, I spent a month there with my family. Um, my parents rented a house in Crookhaven. And so when they talk about O'Sullivan's Pub in Crookhaven, I'm like, oh, snap, that is the first place I ever drank. <laughs> <laughs> and spoiler alert, the 80-year-old pub owner is not the prime suspect. No. But I, I think, and I want to ask you guys if you feel the same way, I think the Irish are just so expressive. Biased. And Well, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but okay, I'm American. I'm a you know, a family comes from Ireland, but I just think when you listen to them, everybody speak. It's just not only is it just so charming the way the turn of phrase, which I think is probably just you know natural idioms that they throw around in that area. It is just so enjoyable to listen to them. Listen to everybody except our prime suspect to listen to the way everybody expresses themselves. Yeah. It's just it, it to me it's intoxicating. Well, here's the thing about what, Ireland, okay? And I really in some ways, just follow me for a second. Right. I really think it's a, in very many ways offensive when Americans like like to go to other countries because they think like people in another country are like adorable and awesome and like charming. The Irish completely deliver on all of those like disgusting American thoughts because they are awesome and charming and the eloquence with which like every single person you talk to in Ireland speaks about their own life, their experiences, uh, their country, their worldview. Ireland is a place, I mean, I've been there three times. I've never walked into a pub in Ireland or been in a situation at a festival or on a street or in a shop or in a bed and breakfast where I haven't felt like I could stay and talk to this person and that the Blarney is the Blarney Stone is real. It is a real thing. And there's a reason why it's an Irish legend, because uh-huh. the people in Ireland are great talkers. They are great talkers. And I think it's important that this place, though, even though I find them very expressive, that we still understand that this place has a way of looking at outsiders. Right. And it sort of informs when we get to the prime suspect, how they fit in with people who are there and with people who are also blow-ins. Yeah. There's certainly a lot of blow-ins there, though. I mean, he's not the only yeah. blow-in, which is super interesting. Now, I want to talk about some other thing that happens in the podcast and the production of the podcast that continually blew my mind throughout all 13 episodes. Now, I should say we got all 13 episodes. I listened to all 13 and it was like addictive. I could not stop. I had to hit play on the next uh-huh. one. I was like f- trying to find time. I was like at work, like in the bathroom, listening to 10 minutes of an episode, you know, that kind of thing. That's it's this. It's that kind of show. It really pulls you yeah. in because I, it's audible. You know, immediately. Oh, it's eight hours. Exactly. Exactly. I've never heard any production that has such a wealth of found audio. The resources available to these podcasters, Laura. We have cops who accidentally taped themselves in their own conversations. Oh, yeah. We have a main character who, for whatever reason, carried a recorder around with him even when he was alone and would just keep like an audio diary. So in addition to all of these in-depth interviews, when they talk about something happening, then they just play the tape of the th- from the yeah. 90s. Isn't that incredible? It's, it's really crazy. When I was listening to the suspect talking about you know having this tape and, and he had also recorded conversations, I was thinking, boy, they, they have different um, rules there about recording people, huh? 
Um, you know, kind of wouldn't get away with that here. Um, but it was, it was, uh, you know, really, I, I liked it being able to have that window into the time period where something actually happened. But the recordings of the police officers, um, without giving anything away, that's when I was like, holy shit, yep. I can't believe what I am hearing. And it was right there on tape. So you can't really challenge that it happened. Yeah, it was, it was great. And I, you know, I think the access, you know, overall in this entire podcast was tremendous. And I think that's what made it so compelling. Yeah. And it's not a spoiler to say that because you should know that if this case hasn't been solved, that there were mistakes made in the investigation. Right. And so they go through that, too, which is also, I think, the listener is going to kind of like to hear how the Irish handle things, how, how the remote the Garda, the guards. Yeah, uh, in that one place. In that so, place, you yep, know, yep. and like things that could have been done differently. Yep. Now, I, I do want to just make an observation. I just want to see if, if you guys agree. We've criticized a lot of podcasts and we've heard criticisms from our listeners about a lot of our reviews of podcasts. And there are themes that come up over and over again, which is that, you know, this is one sided or didn't get deep enough into the domestic violence angle or we didn't hear enough from the victim or the victim's family or we didn't give the cops a chance to respond to allegations of misconduct or the reporter got too close to the subject or not close enough or not close enough. This podcast is long. It's 13 episodes. I wonder how intentional it was or just how and how thorough they decided to be, because I feel like every single one of those boxes was checked, that every criticism that we've ever put out or that we've gotten in response to our criticisms of pod like they have every single one of those elements in this show. Right, Kevin? Yeah. Yeah, no, no I, th- I think they sh- they struck um you know a good balance on things. I mean, I'm, I just have a couple like I've already listed them, just a couple of sort of quibbles, and it's it's sort of about pacing, which isn't necessarily bad. It's just different, and I think I caution everybody that listens to the first episode and goes, "That was nice," but I don't know why the crime writers were so high on this. Stick with it, and you'll see. Yeah, Toby, do you think that they they did a good job addressing like all of those aspects of this kind of story that that we hear again and again, or sometimes missing from these podcasts? Yeah, I, I mean, I th- it's like kaleidoscopic, I guess. It it really does. When it was over, I didn't wonder why they hadn't done certain things. Mm-hmm. You know, it just kind of felt like it was a pretty full picture. Mm-hmm. And again, I think the domestic violence thing, you know, is something that's sort of a, a, a commonality in a lot of sort of violent crime is that I, I think there was a thing about the one thing that adult mass murderers mass shooters yep mass shooters yep. have is is a history of domestic violence yep. so i think giving that the proper weight is important which which i think they did i like how they sometimes you feel like they're brushing off something in particular like the domestic violence stuff but it's only because they're focusing on something else and then they come back right. to it, they don't let it go. in yeah. a way in a very thorough way right. it's almost like oh yeah i forgot all about it. i right. just kind of I think they do the same thing with his potential innocence or guilt. I mean, I think that they are very thorough and sort of exploring the reasons mm-hmm. on both sides. L- Laura, do you agree on the on the thoroughness angle? I think that they were just complete and thorough in this in this podcast. Very thorough, which is why I still have two episodes to go because I was trying <laughs> to figure out when to fit this in. Um, yeah, and and I think that you know at times, yes, that can feel like the pacing is different than we're used to, but at the same time, it's covering all the angles and. And asking, you know, pretty much all the questions that you would want asked. 
All right. Well, I think that's probably a good place to tip our hands and tell our listeners whether or not they should check out West Cork. Listen to the 13 episodes if you'd like. That's how you can find it. And let's just give our review. Should our listeners do that? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Thumbs up or thumbs down on West Cork? I'm going to say thumbs up. Surprise, surprise. Um, this was this was great. I really enjoyed it. I loved the place. I loved the characters. There's some really quirky characters and quirky behavior that come out as this podcast goes forward, which is something I always love. I was reminded of um, my new obsession, thanks to Rebecca Louise Penny, mm. because it's it's similar. It's like this little village where everybody knows everybody and things like that don't happen here. And yet it did. And so it's got that same sort of... Um, you know, feel to it that I've I've come to like in that style of mystery novel, but in a real life story. Toby, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down on West Cork? I definitely give it a thumbs up and I would go a little further and just say that I think it raises the bar a little bit. If I was to list like my four or five favorite podcasts that I've listened to, I think this this would probably be in it. Wow, that, that's a hearty recommendation. And you know what? I'm actually going to agree with you. I think West Cork is Excellent. I think it is different from shows like In the Dark or Accused or Serial, other excellent true crime podcasts we've talked about. It's produced a little bit differently. It's even mixed a little bit differently. And I know that a couple of weeks ago, I gave Atlanta Monster a lot of crap for the way that it mixed music with especially electronic music with talking this podcast has electronic music and uses it well. <laughs> and if you want to like hear what a mix is supposed to sound like, technically speaking, listen to West Cork. It's I not indiscriminate trip hop. It's not indiscriminate trip hop and it's not arbitrary. But the story is thorough. My only slight critique is I do think just on an editorial side, it could have benefited from some slight trimming, although I completely understand why they didn't, especially when you get in the later episodes, because the stuff they didn't trim comes into play later. There may have been ways to speed some of that stuff up. I don't know. It doesn't really matter because overall, I think it's just absolutely excellent. Huge thumbs up for me on West Cork. What about you, Kevin? Well, I can see where the the story ends up because it's still essentially a story that's going. Why we heard this hyped up by Eric Newsom over the summer at mm-hmm. Podcast Movement yep. and why we, we were expecting to hear West Cork sooner. I think they just, you know, there's just it just keeps going on. It keeps being added Yes, but too. our listeners should not look it up. Don't, don't look, look up, up the case. Don't look up the listen. case. Don't do it. Don't look up the case. And I have to uh, apologize to uh, my listeners for not thinking ahead to put West Cork with the Martha Stewart Wine Company. <laughs> that would have been a hell of a transition. I think I blew it. So what are you going to transition to now instead? Well, I'm going to first say that uh, thumbs up for me. I think that uh, it's the best podcast of 2018 so far. I know it's a small sample size, but I think that this is this is really good. Not the best of all time, but it's an excellent podcast. It's up there. It's, a, it's, it's definitely the top 10 list, wouldn't you say? Definitely a top 10 list. And it's sort of like Toby's right. Like It makes the West of Ireland sound awesome. <laughs> Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? 
I left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the week. (laughs) Police in Worcestershire, UK, are working a kidnapping case that's taken them down a rabbit hole. Authorities say the world's largest rabbit was taken from his enclosure this week. Darius is a four-foot-long continental giant rabbit recognized by Guinness as the largest of his kind. Investigators do believe he was taken and that it's not a case of this behemoth bunny just getting out of its enclosure. Unfortunately, because of COVID restrictions, Lara Bricker, pet detective, cannot get a work visa into the United Kingdom. Oh, no. So the Brits have to go it alone. Good luck, Brits. Even with a threat of legal action, the owners are offering a reward of 1,000 quid for Darius. You could call that more carrot, less stick. Mm. So the real question isn't who would take Darius. It's how did he get to be four feet long? (laughs) Panel, how did this rabbit get so big? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Well, Kevin thought I was just going to give like an uh, easy answer. But in fact, I went down the rabbit hole because I really wanted to know Why is this rabbit so freaking big? (laughs) Well, it turns out it's a special breed, the continental giant breed. And he is the fourth rabbit that this lady has owned that has held this title. Now, they're the longest. They don't call them the fattest because they don't want to, you know, be mean to the rabbits. But (laughs) no body shaming. (laughs) So prior to this, Darius's mother, Alice, was the biggest rabbit. And prior to that, Amy, and Amy died in 2008 on a publicity tour in Italy. Oh, publicity tour. Oh, no, it's it's crazy. I spent all afternoon watching videos about this. And then before that, it was Roberto. And this was your whole afternoon. Yeah, because I I wanted to know about this rabbit. So there was a story back in 2010, which is when the rabbit got this title. And it actually included what he really eats. So she said, Darius is very healthy. He has lots of exercise and a very good balanced diet. Now that includes every day he eats one bowl of rabbit chow, two Mm. apples, a Mm. dozen carrots with their leafy tops, and half a cabbage. Mm. So he's like the Michael Phelps of rabbits. Yeah. That's very specific and accurate, Lara. But Toby Ball, how do you think this rabbit got so big? Soylent green is rabbits. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think, Kevin? Uh, Rick Moranis. Oh, my God. What do you mean? Honey, I blew up the rabbit. All I can think about is um, this is really I, I do not believe in eating rabbits. I would never eat a rabbit. But I was looking up all these rabbit recipes and thinking oh. about like Darius would make so much of rabbit this, cacciatore like, rabbit and wine and garlic sauce. Listen, I, I would never eat Darius. All I can think of is that is a big ass. You want to be able to finish you guys, four feet. That's Nobody, like, nobody's going to say continental breakfast. That's like a, that's like an Irish wolfhound. It's huge. Rabbit. Oh, and there's one more fact. There's one more fact I didn't tell you. This is the creepiest thing that we actually should be talking about. His owner had surgery to make herself look like Jessica Rabbit in oh that. Oh, boy. No, like legit. What? Oh, it's a whole thing. I I need to go to England, people. I need to go to England. It needs to be in our newsletter, what? Kevin. All right. I'm on oh. this right now. <laughs> yeah. All right. We should probably end it on that. Now, before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? Um, we have a cat and a dog. They came to us from Aaron Byrne. 
And Erin sent us a lovely email about Butters, a nine-year-old Carolina dog. Butters! A.K.A. American Dingo. And she says, my mom died suddenly 10 years ago and I became very depressed. One day I went to the pound to get a cat. But then a person I knew there explained that this tiny six-week-old puppy had been left in a box on the side of the road. She was too little to adopt, but I fostered her and fell in love. We both missed our moms, but we had each other. She rescued me as much as I rescued her. Oh, Butters. I love Butters. There's a picture of Butters running around. She was always by my side when I was caregiver to my father who has Alzheimer's. Um, She is my best pal. So last summer, Butters was a little confused when Erin came home with a five-week-old kitten. (gasps) Her Oh, it gets better. Her her fiancé was fishing on the river and when heading to a landing to pick her up some friends they passed under a bridge heard a cat meowing they stopped and found this tiny kitty clinging to a bridge piling so somebody they think threw him off the bridge like in the old days when they used to like drown Mm. kittens in sacks so they brought him home and now he's theirs and he's called Kitty Rogers and so Butters and Kitty Rogers are our pets of the week this week nice I just got to say that Butter's owner, like, it has, has to be a South Park fan, right? Got yeah. it. All right. So, Laura Bricker, folks want to reach out to you and pitch their heartwarming stories for their animals. It could be any kind of animal to be Cat of the Week. It also doesn't have to be that heartwarming. How can they find you online? Uh, at Laura Bricker on Twitter. And Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you and tell you exactly what was up with that triangle-shaped flashing UFO that the U.S. military says is a legit UFO. How can they find you on Twitter? Does the U.S. military seriously say that? Right, they did. That was part of the story we saw this morning. Well, uh, what did they say? It's an it's a UFO. All it means is unidentified. They said that it's, I don't know. A UFO just means unidentified. It doesn't mean whatever. it's Whatever, you can just guys. get in touch with me at Toby Ball and H with whatever your take is. And Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you and say, you are so lucky to be married to Rebecca Lavoy. How can they find you on Twitter? Uh, I will not be accepting messages like that. <laughs> you will be blocked at Kevin P. Flynn. <laughs> if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, because I am, in fact, very lucky to be married to Kevin. See, I'm better than him. You, you can find me at Ramble Lavoie. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On, and I encourage you to join our amazing community and our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, but, you know, that's just an entree to the group. Join the group. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get four extra podcasts. The Crime Writers On After Show, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast. And yes, sign up for our newsletter at crimewriterson.com. Our theme song was composed and performed by the wonderfully talented Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the very handsome and very wonderfully talented Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this fine program is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where we've hung our copy of Christ on the Sea of Galilee. Shh, don't tell anybody. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. later. You know, back in Boston, we have these like gritty seasoned Boston Globe reporters that have been doing this forever. The one, Shelley Murphy, who's covered organized crime forever, it seems like. Dodchester, then- <laughs> Mattapan, Saugus, <laughs> Methuen, Worcester, Reading. But then we have. Uh, up at Revere Beach, Lowell. Kevin. Chems up by the yeah. Revere. Taco Bell at Revere Beach. Yeah. Salisbury. <laughs> oh my God. I'm sorry, Kevin. Just doing the impressions of like 
people in his and his ex-in-law's families from all these towns. Like Tuk- there are Tuxbury. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Well Paulus. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead, Lara. Oh, okay. Um so anyway. <laughs> oh my god. Littleton. South <laughs> Southie. Um <laughs> Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.